When we think of Santa Claus, we typically think of a big, jolly man with a bushy white beard and a joyous smile plastered across his face as he delivers presents to countless children. Ronald Gene Simmons looked somewhat similar to Santa, but there were some sinister differences. For Simmons didn't come bearing presents or holiday delight. No, his loved ones would find only terror within him as he unleashed a darkness inside himself so twisted and evil, it still sends a winter chill through the veins of any who hear his story. The story you're about to hear right now. I'm Rob Gavigan, and I'll be your guide through the dark and the frightening. And if you're into that sort of a thing, be sure to follow my Facebook page now, because you won't want to miss what I have next. A man once deemed a hero by some, Ronald Gene Simmons served in the military, first in the U.S. Navy from 1957 to 1963, then in the U.S. Air Force from 1965 to 1979, where he achieved the ranking of Master Sergeant. He was the recipient of a number of awards, including the Republic of Vietnam Gallantry Cross and the Bronze Star, among others received for his impressive marksmanship. Simmons had dropped out of school to enlist with the Navy in 1957 and was stationed in Washington where he met Becky Ulibarri. The two fell in love and were married in 1960 in New Mexico. Over the course of the next 18 years, they had seven children together. In 1981, however, any facade that Simmons and his wife were a happy couple and that Simmons was a decent man at all began to seriously slip as the New Mexico Department of Human Services began to investigate Simmons due to suspicions that he had to one of his own daughters, a 17-year-old girl named Sheila. The suspicions turned out to be true, and to make matters even worse, Simmons had impregnated his own daughter, and she ended up giving birth to their child, who was assimilated into the family. Simmons was also violently towards his wife Becky, and treated all of his children as though they were slaves to do his bidding. And if they refused, there would be extreme consequences. As a potential arrest became more and more likely, Simmons grew anxious and paranoid. So, to avoid being thrown in prison for insult and the ramifications that would have, he took his entire family and fled from New Mexico, heading to Arkansas. Living wasn't easy for the family at this point. Once they'd found a place to settle down where Simmons felt more at ease, the entire family lived in a large mobile home that had been constructed of two smaller mobile homes joined together. There was no telephone, nor there any indoor plumbing. Instead of toilets, Simmons had his children dig up pits for the family to use. With living under such conditions, and with Simmons harboring his dark secret, a privacy fence was constructed all around the property, reaching ten feet high at certain points, where he kept the outside world from getting in, and likely with the second-hand advantage of keeping his family isolated from the outside world as well. But no one, not even his family, could anticipate the darkness that was brewing inside. Simmons' mind. 
To keep money coming in, Simmons worked a number of jobs here and there, essentially wherever he could find work, but nothing lasted long. Working at a motor freight company ended with Simmons quitting after a number of his female co-workers filed reports against him for making, quote, unwanted sexual advances. Simmons clearly had some kind of issues with his sexual urges and was actively pursuing at least one woman for a sexual relationship, despite the more complicated family dynamic that he kept at home, hidden behind his makeshift fence. As the 1980s moved on, so did two of the children. Son Billy and daughter Sheila, the one who Simmons had moved away and started families of their own. Sheila took the little girl Simmons had fathered with her, named Sylvia, in hopes of giving her a better life away from him. Once December of 1987 came, Simmons went out to a Sears store and purchased presents for his family in anticipation for Christmas Day. However, he also had grown more unstable than ever. It was just before Christmas of that same year, on December 18th, that Simmons had abruptly quit his job working at a mini-mart. It's unknown whether or not he had a plan in his head for the events that were to come, or perhaps if he'd just finally and fully snapped. But in four days' time, he would unleash the true monster within himself to its fullest potential. December 22nd, 1987. Christmas lights glimmered outside of nearby homes. Christmas music played on family stereos. Parents scrambled to get their last-minute shopping done, and children were excited to get out of school and start Christmas break. All was right and normal. But then, for reasons unknown, Ronald Gene Simmons decided to kill his entire family. He loaded a torch and then went and grabbed a hammer, wasting no time in using it to bore his wife Becky and his eldest son Gene with it. From there, he finished them both off with His three-year-old granddaughter, Barbara, was in another area of the home and hadn't known what was going on. Simmons went to her and Then, as if they were nothing but excrement, in one of the cesspits outside the home. He waited for his other children to return home from school, and he told them that he had presents for all of them. Excited, the children had no idea what their father had just done, and they were, of course, eager to get their presents, especially considering the fact that gifts were likely a rare surprise in their impoverished home. Simmons had one condition for his children to get their presents. He said that he didn't want to give them all their presents at once, but that he wanted to give them their gifts one child at a time. Obliging the strange request, the children waited patiently as one by one, each child was called over to receive their Christmas gift out of sight from the others. 17-year-old Loretta was the first. Once she approached, Simmons grabbed and began struggling before forcing her head into a full rain barrel right there. Then, the three following children, Eddie, Becky, and Mary Ann, met the same horrible fate, one at a time in their father's hands. And their bodies, too, were dumped into one of the cesspits, and in just a matter of a few hours, 
seven people were killed. Simmons then went inside, sat down in front of the television and drank as though nothing had happened. A few days ticked by, Christmas came, and he remained there in the eerie quiet of the once bustling home. Despite the atrocity he'd committed, he did contact the rest of the family and invited them to come visit on the day after Christmas so they could spend time together. They all accepted the invitation. His son Billy arrived with his wife Renata and their 20-month-old son Trey. His daughter Sheila, who Simmons had fathered a child with, also stopped by bringing her husband Dennis along with their 21-month-old son, Michael, and Sylvia, the daughter of Simmons and Sheila, who was now seven years old. They surely had noticed the alarming emptiness of the home. They certainly had felt something was wrong, but that red flag popped up far too late. Simmons killed every single person who arrived at his home that day. They shot his son Billy and his wife Renata, and then strangled his baby grandson, Trey. He then shot and killed Sheila and Dennis, then proceeded to strangle Sylvia to death, before moving on to strangle little Michael to death as well. Simmons took the bodies of his family and laid them out in neat rows inside his home, covering their bodies in coats. Sheila was different, however, perhaps still because Simmons found her special in his own demented way, she was covered in his wife Becky's nicest tablecloth. Trey and Michael, the two baby boys, were wrapped in plastic sheets and shut inside abandoned cars that were parked at the end of the lane. Simmons then got into his vehicle and drove to the Sears store where he'd purchased presents for his family and retrieved them for unclear reasons. From there, Simmons traveled to a local bar and got himself a drink before heading home to continue drinking while he watched television. Strangely, he also made sure the gifts were all wrapped and placed under the tree, a stark contrast to all of the bodies, gifts for children who would never open them. This is the part where I say that Ronald Gene Simmons who killed his entire family, contacted police to confess what he'd done and was promptly arrested, or that he turned it on himself. But no, actually this isn't where the story goes. Not yet, anyway. He drank and watched television until December 28th when he drove to Walmart and purchased another similar firearm. Simmons then traveled to a law firm. The secretary of the firm was a woman named Kathy Kendrick, Simmons had been pursuing Kendrick for a relationship, however, she rejected him. This didn't sit well with him, of course, and now he was out for revenge. He walked into the law firm, his revolver, much to Kendrick's horror, and he shot her. Kendrick did not survive. Despite openly shooting someone, Simmons was able to get back into his vehicle and drove to the office of an oil company which a man named Russell Taylor owned. But he didn't just own the oil company, he also owned the mini-mart where Simmons had worked, and quit just a few days prior. Taylor was quickly shot and fell to the floor. Two other men at the office, possibly trying to intervene, drew Simmons' ire, and he shot both of them. One man managed to escape without being hit, but the other, named James Chaffin, was less fortunate and was fatally shot. 
Simmons had no connection with James or the other man. However, Russell Taylor fortunately survived his wounds. Still not finished with his rampage, Simmons rushed back to his vehicle and took off to the mini-mart he previously worked at, where he opened fire on two people, wounding them both, yet both thankfully survived. Then it was on to the Motor Freight Company, where Simmons had worked prior to the mini-mart. He located his former supervisor and shot him twice. Simmons briefly took an employee hostage and demanded she call the police. He said to her, I've come to do what I wanted to do. It's all over now. I've gotten everyone who wanted to hurt me. Police Chief Herb Johnston arrived on the scene. Shockingly, he was unarmed at the time, but bravely confronted Simmons regardless. I want your damned gun, he demanded. Simmons handed over his weapons without resistance and was arrested. First aid was administered to the supervisor who survived her encounter with Simmons. Two trials were held for Simmons, first in regards to the deaths of Kathy Kendrick and James Chaffin, for which he was found guilty and sentenced to death. The second trial was for the murders of his 14 family members, for which he, again, was found guilty and sentenced to death. On the day of the verdict, Simmons attacked the prosecutor and had to be restrained and then moved to a holding cell. Simmons was content with the death sentence and went on to say before the court, quote, I, Ronald Gene Simmons Sr., wanted to be known that it is my wish and my desire that absolutely no action by anybody be taken to appeal or in any way change this sentence. It is further respectfully requested that this sentence be carried out expeditiously. Unlike so many other death row inmates, Simmons refused to appeal his sentences. He even made a statement regarding his decision, saying, quote, To those who oppose the death penalty, in my particular case, anything short of death would be cruel and unusual punishment. You may not have known, but at least in this specific circumstance, death row inmates don't take kindly to other death row inmates who don't appeal their sentences. Simmons' life was perpetually under threat from the other inmates who believed that his lack of willingness to appeal was going to shine a poor light on their own efforts to get appeals. One inmate named Jonas Whitmore even tried to force Simmons to appeal, attempting to use the, quote, next friend under common law, which allows for an individual to represent someone in legal matters if the initial person is either underage or otherwise incapable of properly representing themselves. This caused quite a bit of controversy and even resulted in the Supreme Court ruling on the case in Whitmore v. Arkansas, where they ruled that Whitmore was out of luck. They ruled the 8th and 14th Amendments did not require mandatory appellate review of death penalty cases and that individuals cannot file cases as next friend if they didn't have a prior relationship to the appellant. Despite all the death threats made in attempts to ironically save his life, Simmons had his execution warrant signed by Bill Clinton, then governor of Arkansas, and Ronald Gene Simmons was put to death by lethal injection on June 25, 1990. 
no remaining extended family members would claim his body after the horrors he had brought on his own closest family. So Simmons was buried in a common grave, a burial site reserved for unknown and unclaimed people. The week prior to the massacre, eight-year-old Becky Simmons was given an assignment in school to write an essay on parents and children. She wrote of children, You enjoy life better. You have more energy. You're smaller so you can do some things adults can't do. You can play in the park and adults are too big. Parents can eat, wear, watch any TV that you want, go to parties, wear good clothes and everything. Children do not have to pay the bills or pay for anything. You have parents and teachers to help you learn so you are not a dummy or stupid. What she wrote proved that she knew what a loving home should have been like, but a loving home wasn't a reality for her. One of the most important reasons children have parents, she wrote, is so they can, quote, watch over you so you can be safe. That's all for this episode. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. And don't forget to subscribe to my Facebook page now because you won't want to miss what I have next. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.